Hi, my name is Phoebe Wilkinson and I am a beauty therapist, or if you're from outside of Australia, also known as an esthetician. I have over 10 years experience working within a range of different businesses, including hair and beauty salons, makeup artistry studios, day spas, skin clinics, and registered training organizations, teaching government accredited beauty qualifications, and as of more recently, moving overseas and experiencing working for a Turkish Moroccan inspired day spa and luxurious body range company called Sella in the heart of Toronto, Canada. Whether you are studying beauty therapy, have been a beauty professional for 10 years or more, own a business within the beauty industry, or have a general interest in the beauty world, then this podcast is for you. I wanted to create a platform for beauty professionals to come together to help inspire and empower, to encourage us to come together as a family rather than always competing with each other, somewhere where we can discuss topics like retailing techniques, education, staff management, active ingredients, marketing, industry expectations, and a whole heap more. So I hope you enjoy this podcast. Hi everyone and welcome back to the Beauty Code podcast. We are now at episode five. I have absolutely loved doing all of these podcasts so far. Um, The four episodes that have already been published have gotten great feedback. Everyone does seem to be enjoying them. So uh, if you haven't had the chance to tell me what your thoughts have been so far, please feel free to do so. I would love to hear from you. If you, again, have any topics or suggestions or questions for future episodes, I know I'm asking this all the time, but I really would love to hear from you as well. My email is thebeautycodepodcast at gmail.com. But let's get into today. So today I am going to be going over 10 beauty myths and we're going to go in and debunk them and talk about why they are myths and what is true or untrue about them. So let's get started. So number one, this is probably my favorite myth (laughs) that I like to talk about, especially with clients, um, but to everyone. And I find it a very uh, interesting topic, but I find it such a common mistake. So it is, you need to drink more water to help rehydrate your skin. There are so many situations, like I would say probably 90% of my clients when I'm doing a consultation or a skin diagnosis and we talk about dehydration, look, everyone has dehydration. If you are a beauty therapist or an esthetician out there and you're stuck for something to talk about with your client in a skin diagnosis, I can almost guarantee she will have dehydration. So um, it's often a a topic that you talk with pretty much with every single one of your clients. And yeah, I would say almost 90% of my clients will say to me as soon as I bring up the topic dehydration or or they bring up the topic of dehydration is, oh, I don't, yeah, I don't drink enough water. I really need to drink more water. So do or can you rehydrate your skin with water consumption? And the answer is no. Now saying this, the reason being is because no matter how much water you consume, 
that water is going to go to all of your other organs before it gets to your skin. So you would have to drink a huge amount of water for it to actually reach the skin before it reaches everything else. And that's even if it were to actually get to the skin eventually anyway. However, if you don't drink enough water, and I, I want to make this clear, I'm not promoting don't drink water or don't, don't go out of your way to drink more water because it will help your skin in a way. Now, it won't replenish the water content within your cells. However, it will prevent any further loss of water within the skin. So what I mean by that is when we are depleted of something, the body will take it from areas that we don't necessarily need it. And that can go for, for nutrition or, or even water. If you're not getting the right nutrition within your diet, um, I know that I, even I have experienced this before with fad diets and things like that. Um, if you're not getting enough protein or fats, etc., it will take it from elsewhere. So for example, if you are dieting or you're not eating properly um, and you're not getting that right amount of protein, your body, that's when you start to see weak nails. It's when you start to see hair loss. And it's also can affect your fertility as well and make you sterile because your body is going to take the protein that it needs from areas that you don't necessarily need to actually survive. So our nails, our skin, our hair, our eggs. So it's the same with water. If our body is dehydrated, it is going to take the water content from areas that it's not necessarily needed in. So for example, our skin, making our skin dehydrated. However, no matter how much water consumption we actually have, that's never going to replenish the water back into those cells. So my recommendation to clients is yes, always up your water, always drink as much water as you possibly can. However, just remember that it is a preventative measure. It's so you can prevent further dehydration in the skin. It's not going to actually fix or cure the dehydration that you currently have. And then that's when you can go into detail with what products and what treatments that they should be having and, and that would actually help the water content within that skin. Okay, so number two, you need to give your nails and or skin a break to breathe every so often. I hear this all the time. I have clients come in that will have manicures and pedicures and say, oh, I'm not going to pop um, any polish or any shellac, but yeah, even polish on today because I'm just giving them a breather. Oh, it's winter. No one sees my nails, which is fine. And even I do that, but that's out of laziness. <laughs> um, and I'm just going to give my, my nails a breathe for, for this season. I, I have polish on all the time or I have shellac on all the time. I'm just going to let them breathe. Your nails do not breathe. Okay. Um, and it's the same with your skin as well. A lot of people will say, oh, I'm just giving my skin a bit of a break. I'm not wearing any makeup because I need it to breathe. So let's start off with nails to begin with. Now, yes, your nails can um, get damaged from certain nail treatments. Okay. This might be for, from... 
um, removing the top layer of this of the actual nail when you're applying a product you might need to mattify it and just remove any oils and shine some products will require you to actually file the nail itself before going in and putting something on top some actually won't shellac doesn't actually require that um, anymore so all you need to do is dehydrate the nail and put it straight on and that's fine but it's when your client is actually picking the shellac off that they will actually pick a layer of the natural nail off with it and that's when they're going to see damage um, even to be honest with you the dehydrators that we use when we're doing shellac treatments or when we're doing proper removals even though it's better than just picking it off we're still using acetone which is going to be really dehydrating to the nail it shouldn't necessarily um, affect the actual thickness of the nail but it is going to dehydrate it and make it a lot drier so it does affect the quality to some extent in my belief however by you giving your nails a break the only time I ever really recommend that to clients is so that you can strengthen your nails okay if they've been picking at them if they've had shellac on and off them for a very long time they might just start becoming a bit weak and they might even start to get a little bit painful if they're that if they're that fine and thin as well and brittle however when it comes to the term we I'm giving them a rest so that they can actually breathe like and especially when you're talking like actual nail polish nail varnish there's no harm that the nail varnish is actually doing to your nail if you're not using a base coat then yes your nail may get a bit of discoloration um, but that's just a stain it's it's not actually seeping into the nail or affecting the nails health in the sense of it breathing or or the oxygen supply to the actual nail and it's the same with when it comes to skin as well now depending on the skin type and depending on the makeup that you're using as well absolutely if you've got an oily skin type or a buildup of dead skin cells even flaky skin like if you've got dry rough skin that's building up as well and then you go in and you use a really thick um, oil-based or wax-based uh, foundation or a mattifying foundation i find um, they, they do them as well um then yes what can happen is the foundation can clog the pore and then therefore it can fill with excess oil however um, it depends again yeah on the skin type and the foundation and how often you're cleaning your face and exfoliating as well if you're wearing foundation um, to work for an eight hour day if you're putting that on in the morning on a freshly cleansed face and you're coming home and you're removing it and you're cleansing it and you're doing your normal skincare routine then really you shouldn't be seeing any other side effects you're you're really only going to see clogged pores or certain severe skin conditions if you're doing things like sleeping in your makeup because then yes your foundation it's not that your skin needs to breathe, it's just sitting in those pores and you're getting build up as well. So you're going to be getting clogged pores full of dirts, oils, um, dead skin. It's, it's not just because your skin can't breathe, therefore it accumulates oil, that's not the case. Okay, so number three, 
This is actually one of my favorite myths that I often like to talk about as well. And I actually have seen this quite a bit online. It's not something that I have a huge amount of clients talk to me about. Um, there are clients out there that are concerned with natural ingredients or want their skincare lines to, I guess, abide by certain things. But this one I see a lot online. So it's, you should be able to eat anything you apply to your skin. So what they're saying is anything that we topically apply to our body, we should be able to consume for the reason being that it can penetrate into the dermis and then potentially go through our capillaries and end up in our, <clears throat> sorry, <coughs> Oh, I just swallowed the wrong way um, and enter our bloodstream via capillaries. And this is only possible if that product had a small enough molecular structure to actually, I guess, penetrate through those pores to actually get through to the dermis. And our capillaries are so incredibly fine that it would be very unlikely for anything to actually get to the bloodstream. The only um, products or ingredients that are known to potentially enter the bloodstream um, is your essential oils, okay? And that's why as a beauty therapist or esthetician, we try not to use any essential oils on pregnant women. And the reason being is there's just not enough studies or cases to know what essential oils are okay to use throughout pregnancy and breastfeeding. For the reason being that no one's going to be willing to test what essential oils enter the bloodstream and what essential oils um, actually affect the growth of their baby. Like no one's going to be willing to risk that. So I personally would say that not to use essential oils at all when you're pregnant or breastfeeding. I know that there are some reports on what essential oils you can and can't use, but I generally stick clear for, um, from them when I'm treating a client just to be on the safe side. Um, and same with, uh, I think vitamin A is obviously a high risk when you're pregnant and, and breastfeeding and even salicylic acid too. But these are all ingredients that do have that small enough of a molecular structure to actually change the skin. So you should only be using, for example, like a retinol or vitamin A, you should only be using that anyway if you want quite a change, if you're trying to actually change quite a severe skin condition. Otherwise, it's not really needed. It depends on what you're using it for. Um, but yeah, to be honest, in my opinion, you can go ham on top of your skin. It's not going to enter your body. So what you're topically actually applying, it doesn't, if you ate that, then I'm sure that you probably <laughs> would not be okay. Um, as you would read on many bottles of what we actually put on our skin, whether that be from like medical creams to just skin, like your normal skincare to even just like your body ranges, it will actually recommend not eating it and to call probably some sort of service line. <laughs> Okay, number four. So only dry skin needs moisturizer. Now this is a complete myth for a couple of different reasons. 
Number one, um, or the main reason, is as I was speaking in the last episode, if you have listened to that, um, dryness and dehydration are two different things, okay? So remembering that dry skin is lack of oil within the skin and dehydrated skin is lack of water in the skin. So you can well and truly have a client come in and have a, a like a quite a large amount of excess oil throughout her skin um, and she's got congestions and breakouts and build up etc but then she can also have lack of water within the skin and be quite dehydrated in a lot of areas as well so obviously you're going to need to treat that dehydration because some products for oily skins can be a little bit stripping as well especially if you have a client that's incorrectly using something i know a lot of oily skins love to get that real squeaky clean kind of feeling after they exfoliate and they do it every single day and then they over exfoliate and then the skin kind of freaks out and produces more oil so what actually happens when we over exfoliate or we over cleanse or we don't moisturize and this is another reason why oily skins need to moisturize is if there's not enough moisture in the area that's the point of oil we it it is good for your skin it is there is a reason why there is oil production we need oil production within the skin because it's there to actually lubricate the actual pore and the surface of the skin as well So if there's not enough of that and we've stripped it away, uh, the skin actually will freak out and produce more. And that's why uh, a lot of hairdressers, for example, will recommend not washing your hair every day. And if you start washing your hair every day, you will then actually need to wash it more and more and more and more. And it's because that pore will actually go ah, like it it freaks out and it goes, I need to make more oil. And then you remove that oil. Oh, I need to make even more oil. And you remove that oil. Oh, I need to make even more oil. And then you're removing that oil. So it's freaking out, producing even more oil from you going and cleansing and exfoliating way too often. And especially if you're not hydrating the area, if you're not using a moisturizer to actually hydrate the skin, it's starting to freak out, thinking that it's actually needing to produce more oil when in fact it's already producing too much oil. Okay, number five, shaving makes your hair grow thicker. Now, this isn't a complete myth, but it is a myth. (laughs) And when I was teaching beauty therapy, I used to really love drawing um, a diagram for this, but obviously I can't do that in a podcast. So we'll see how we go. But what happens when we are shaving is that hair, obviously the hair has started to grow from the follicle, okay? It goes up through the follicle and then what you actually see above the skin is called what like is what we call a hair shaft. So when we are actually shaving, we are just cutting the hair against the level of the skin, which means that we're cutting off that fine tip. If you imagine or if you look up what an actual hair looks like, it's very thick down the bottom. And then as it grows into its fine point, it gets finer as it gets up to the top. So you're cutting that hair right in the center, which means that you're probably cutting it at its thickest point. So that then when it starts to continue growing, it no longer has that fine thin point at the end of it so the hair itself will appear thicker and darker because of the blunt edge that is actually I guess what we would normally think is what should be a fine tip Um, so 
in that retrospect, it is or it does appear thicker or darker. However, it is a complete myth that shaving would actually cause more hair or your hair to change color. That is incorrect. It's impossible. You can't just invent more follicles and invent more hair growing. It doesn't happen. Um, But like I was saying, it does appear to have that same effect. And it's the same for the other way around when it comes to waxing. A lot of beauty therapists or estheticians will say, no, 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 you shouldn't shouldn't shave, which is the case. Um, But their reasoning will be because that waxing will make it grow a lot finer, a lot fairer, and eventually will not grow back. Now, the the whole thing around finer and less hair especially straight away is not true for the reason being that when we're waxing or threading or however you're professionally sugaring, removing hair, you're actually removing that whole hair from the follicle opposed to when you're shaving, you're cutting the hair off at that thickest point. When you're waxing, you're actually removing the whole hair from the actual follicle. Therefore, a whole new hair has to actually grow back in order for there to be growth. So what happens is when you wax, that hair is then going to start growing in the follicle and eventually come through. And the reason why it appears fairer in comparison to shaving is just because it's a brand new hair and it's got that fine point. So once it gets to the same length that it was when you originally waxed it, it should literally be like exactly the same. You haven't, you haven't, you know, removed any hair follicles. Um, there won't be any change in your DNA. You can't do that. So the color and thickness and the amount of hairs will be exactly the same. However, if you have been waxing for an extremely long time, and I'm not saying 12 months of waxing or even five years of waxing, I'm talking like 20 or 30 years down the track. I have a lot of more mature age clients that are 60s, 70s, Um, that's probably the most common age bracket that will come in and they'll come in for their half or full leg wax. And I question why they're even doing it because they literally have like two hairs that you could tweeze. And the reason being is because they have been waxing since they can remember since they were 15 years old. Um, And what happens over a long period of time, not only do we go through hormonal changes, okay, which will actually change our growth cycles, um, but it is also because after such a long time, the skin and the actual hair follicle does become traumatized and will stunt growth as well. So that is true in a way that eventually you will see less hair growth, but we're talking a long time time. Okay, number six, you should never wax above the brow, formerly kind of known as you should never shape from the top of the brow. Now, I guess, again, this is something that, depending on the person, this is more of an opinion thing. For me, I just, I probably wouldn't reshape a brow from the top, but my goodness, absolutely, yes. Every single person that I wax, I wax above that brow because I want a nice, strong, defined edge, and I want it to be nice and clean and tidy and perfect, even for that fluffy kind of, um, 
brow effect that's very in fashion on trend at the moment. Um, that's created by brushing and making the hair that's already there quite fluffy. I would still wax around that top of the brow. There's not much to go into here, guys. Um, there's no, like I said, it's more of an opinion than anything, but don't be afraid to wax the top. Um, depending on the brow that you're working with, I, and I would say maybe like 10% of the brows that I've ever done, I have reshaped from the top, but it um, it was necessary, to be honest. Uh, majority of the time I wouldn't reshape, but every single brow I do actually wax the top of the brow. Okay, number seven. Anti-aging products should all have collagen in them. So I'm not anti-collagen treatments, please don't get me wrong. But when you go to especially like supermarkets and you see creams that will have collagen written across the bottle, or if you go and have collagen treatments done, even with a professional service provider, um, or if you are doing collagen treatments, it's important for us to know that it is impossible to actually put collagen back in the skin, okay? You would literally have to inject it if you wanted to replenish or, or put more collagen into the skin. Our collagen and elastin fibers sit within our dermis, which is our second layer of the skin. And for you to actually put collagen back in there, again, would have to have that small enough molecular structure. And it is just a fact that collagen is too big of a molecule that it will not penetrate the epidermis, which is the outer layer of the skin. It will not. It's impossible. However, a lot of our collagen treatments that we actually perform, uh, ingredients like hyaluronic acid is one of them, um, but many ingredients, even vitamin C ingredients, like L-ascorbic acid too, probably. These are ingredients that will help stimulate our own collagen growth. And that's what's really important to explain to clients when you're doing certain services or um, retailing them certain products. If they're worried about volume, plumpness, collagen production within their skin, when you do a collagen mask, you know those collagen sheets, for example, there's no collagen in them. You can't you can't put collagen into the skin like I was just saying. Usually those sheet masks are purely hyaluronic acid. That's literally all they are. Um, and what it does is it helps stimulate the growth of our own collagen production. So just remember that. Um, it's a little tip from me. I just find a lot of clients that will say like, oh, I want, I want products with collagen in them or I'm getting a collagen treatment. You're not getting a collagen treatment unless you're literally having it injected. And I'm pretty sure you can't do that either from what I understand anyway. So collagen. Just remember that whenever you're doing collagen treatments, it's not injecting collagen. It is stimulating and helping the client's own skin to produce its own collagen. Okay, number eight. Your skin, your skincare should be kept in the fridge. Guys, those little mini fridges that are super cute and look like amazing on social media and like look real fun when you have it on your Instagram. Like, don't get me wrong, even I have been tempted to buy one of those little pink mini fridges to keep for my skincare. <laughs> 
they don't do anything, okay? Um, there's no benefit. Your products are not going to last you any longer. And to be honest with you, majority of products without being open will have about a shelf life of two years. Once open, depending on what the product is that you're using, but for example, if it's a vitamin C, and this is only if it's in like specific packaging as well, like as long as it's in a dark um, bottle and a certain way of how it comes out, etc. It is only going to have a six month shelf life once the product is then open generally. And no fridge is actually going to help your products last any longer or do anything else that they claim that they do by having your ingredients or your skincare cold. Other than Sometimes it can feel quite nice and refreshing, especially if you live in Australia and it's in the middle of the summer. I don't mind when I'm doing my own skincare to put a nice cooling product on my face. If that's what you're doing it for, then fantastic. Otherwise, just remember, guys, it's marketing. It's, it's not actually going to change your skin. But I mean, if you like the look of them and you like the idea of putting something nice and cooling on your skin, then go ahead, might by means. <laughs> Number nine, your night cream should be different to your day cream or at least thicker. Now, this one's a good one because the only reason why your day or your night cream should be different is... If your day cream has an SPF, like a sunscreen within it, saying that if you are well trained within the industry, you would also understand and know that your SPFs, your sunscreens should always be separate to your moisturizers. Now, a while ago, you, when I, well, let me start again. When I first started uh, within this industry, I found that a lot of skincare lines that I was working with already had the SPF built into the moisturizer. And honestly, all that is is a marketing strategy because you'd have a client come in and they wouldn't want to buy two products. So it was like getting two in one. The thing is, is when you have a product that is this amazing, um, you know, it's this amazing, does everything, 10-in-1 type product. It's got vitamin A, it's got an AHA in there, it's got it's got hyaluronic acid, it's it it's got your SPF, it's got antioxidants, it's it's everything all in one. It's this miracle cream. The thing is, the more active ingredients or the more ingredients that it has within a product obviously the less of a percentage of each ingredient is going to be in that product. So for example, even if it's just your average moisturizer that now has an SPF in it, the amount of the actual moisturizer, instead of using like, I always say probably a five cent piece, 10 cent piece, or a really large pea size for your moisturizer, instead of that small amount for your face, you're needing probably as a minimum, an almond amount, like an almond size amount or, or double that even to actually get the SPF, the amount of SPF, the amount of sunscreen that you need for protection on your face because of the small amount of percentage of SPF that would actually be in that product. 
So I always explain to clients that it's good to keep them separate. Obviously, it's great. It's not great, sorry. It's better if the SPFs in the moisturizer are opposed to their uh, makeup. I know a lot of people will say like, oh no, my makeup's got an SPF in it. I don't need to wear SPF. Okay, well, your SPF is probably only a 15, one five within your makeup for starters. And you really should be reapplying your SPF at least halfway through the day. Now, I know that it's unrealistic for majority of people that go to work They've got their skincare, they've done their skincare routine, they've put makeup on, they're not going to go in on their lunch break, take their makeup off, reapply their SPF and then put their makeup back on. That's just unrealistic. It's not going to happen. But it's also probably unlikely that your client is also wearing their makeup every single day and they're also not getting the right amount of SPF or the percentage of SPF that's actually needed to protect on their face when it's incorporated in all of these products. So I always explain to clients it's important that they're separate and if your SPF is separate from your moisturizer, then your moisturizer for both day and night should be exactly the same. That's really the only difference when people will retail you or you retail to your client um, a different night one. It will be because it doesn't have an SPF in it. And that one really should be just for day and night. And then your SPF should be separate. So just keep that in mind as well. Your night cream doesn't necessarily need to be thicker Okay, there's no benefit to having a thicker night cream other than if you just like the texture of having a thicker moisturizer overnight. You should be using um, serums and things like that uh, alongside your moisturizers anyway because that's what's actually going to help the water co content within the skin or correct the skin, do the changes, that whatever the changes are that you need. Okay, now for our very last one, number 10. White spots on your nails mean a calcium deficiency. So this is actually a really, I, like, I'm surprised at how often I get asked this question and how many people know about this, I guess, myth, or, but they don't think it's a myth. Um, it, there is no proof whatsoever that the little white spots that we sometimes get on our nails are from not having enough calcium within our diets or within our bodies. Most of the time, it will just be purely from damage to the nail plate. So it'll be from just like an old bruise or bumping it, etc. Um, a lot of people will argue that, oh, but I've got the same spot on the, every single nail or on multiple nails and they're all exactly the same. It still doesn't, there is still no proof that your nails will indicate if you have a calcium deficiency. So guys, that are, that they, sorry, let me, <laughs> I can't speak today. They are my 10 beauty myths busted. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you question anything that I said today, please feel free to message me and we can go over. Um, I'd love to hear what you think might be wrong or different or have another opinion. Um, and hopefully you enjoyed it and you are looking forward to my next podcast. I'll see you guys soon. Bye. Thank you so much for joining me on the Beauty Code podcast. 
If you have any suggestions, topics or questions that you would like me to cover, please email me at thebeautycodepodcast at gmail.com or DM me on Instagram, which is thebeautycode.podcast. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and I look forward to sharing many more with you. Remember to hit that subscribe button to be the first to know when a new podcast is up and leave a review. Bye.